Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Next Track Cast, where we frequently post articles and retweet thoughts that are related to subjects that we've talked about on the show. And if you haven't bookmarked us yet, we keep all of our stuff at thenexttrack.com. Two years of weekly episodes, listener comments, guest lists, all there. This is episode number 127 of The Next Track. Kirk? So I increasingly get the feeling that I am helping to keep the music industry alive. Yeah, why is that? Well, I bought a box set of CDs again last week. 19 CDs in this set. In fact, I won't say what it is because it's going to be my next track pick at the end of the show. But I bought another CD as well, a CD of contemporary music for Shakuhachi by Frank Denyer. I bought some Bill Nelson CDs recently. I got some new Grateful Dead that came in a while back, and that's the one that Dave's picks that I get for a year. I think that I'm probably a rare case, other than the really obsessive people who, who collect things, I'm probably a rare case these days. I think you're wrong. There's a graphic that we posted on the uh, on our Twitter account this morning, and we didn't think we'd do anything with it. I just thought it was in keeping with our discussions recently about physical media and digital media and streaming media. And it shows a, a very interesting graphic. I guess we're going to post it in the show notes so you can have a look at it. And it's not any information that we haven't talked about before, but it's done in a very nice graphic. And you can see the rise and fall of the various formats over the years. And this article where the, that accompanies this graphic also shows you where the important events took place, for instance, when Napster started, when iTunes Store started. It's very obvious, you can imagine, it, the, the vinyl goes up and then goes down, and then cassettes go up and then go down, and compact discs go up and then go down. And as the compact disc is going down, you start seeing MP3s and streaming start to rise. But the interesting thing about the tail end of this graphic between 2015 and currently is that not only is vinyl rising, CDs are rising. MP3 downloads have not dropped off. They continue to rise, even though streaming does seem to outpace these digital form, these uh, physical formats. It's looking like people are coming back to the compact disc, but not like they were coming back to vinyl. Not as like a, I can't imagine you'd, you know, you'd buy a CD just to look at it. You know, you'd want to play it. <laughs> well, you don't, they're too small and you don't have to worry about scratching a CD if you're, you're careful. Um, I think, I think the most, I think the key element that stands out in this uh, graph is the death of the ringtone sale. <laughs> yeah. the, no, uh, I, you laugh. Right. The ringtones were generating more than a billion dollars a year, yeah. and they've disappeared once people realize that they can use software to create ringtones relatively simply. Didn't Apple make it a little bit easier just to even do it yourself? I mean, I Can't think, you do it in GarageBand? Uh, yeah, as long as you have a 30-second snippet. That's M4A and a, maybe a certain sample rate or a certain, I don't know, I haven't done it in a long time, but, and that you just change the extension to M4R, I believe, from an M4A. Yeah. And you got yourself a ringtone. And it can be more than 30 seconds now. Oh. It's worth noting that when you look at the ringtone bit of the curve, it kind of peaked just before the iPhone came out. Because remember, these were the kind of ringtones that you were putting onto pre-smartphones that were more complicated to transfer. There had to be specific formats and all that. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes to an article I discovered the other day with some ringtones that Brian Eno had composed for the Nokia 8800 Sirocco telephone in 2006. 
it's, these are fascinating little snippets of music. And, and it's really interesting to read in this article when he's talking about how he went about this process. Of course, I hope all our listeners know that Brian Eno composed, what would we say, not music, the tone that has been heard the most in the history of computing. Oh, man, I don't know this. <laughs> oh, he composed the Windows 95 start tone. That I did know that. Yeah. Okay. But yes, the ringtone has died. Won't go up the ringtone. So do look at this graphic if you're listening. Stop your car, pull over, go to the show notes, tap the link. Because it's one of these graphics where instead of individual curves going across the graph, each one compounds the other. So you can see this sort of mountain as the total amount of revenue for the music industry peaks in about 99, 1999 at $21.5 billion and then goes down. But you see the different strata of where the money is coming from. I would have liked to see this go back more than 40 years because around 1978, vinyl peaked. What happened in 1978? This is not yet the Walkman. The Walkman didn't hit until 79 and really started becoming popular around 1980. Also, we see a lot of cassette sales back even pre-77, and I don't remember buying pre-recorded cassettes before about 1979. We, we've we talked about this a little bit before the show, and the cassette kind of peaks a little in 78 and then dips down again. And I'm wondering if those are for blank sales or something. Be maybe it's not just pre-recorded. Maybe they, maybe they started becoming cheaper, and as more deadheads were trading tapes... <laughs> Well, That's everyone it. needed blanks for that. I, I, it's just unusual. And then to see how big the cassette was. I guess I just wasn't in on cassettes. I didn't buy that many pre-recorded cassettes because I could make my own copies of records. I worked at a records uh, worked at a radio station and I could have virtually any album in the library I wanted. I just made a copy of it. You you mean you mean you did home taping that was killing music? No, I did it at work. It was part of my job. I had to do it. It was okay. necessary. Good I had excuse. To, record companies want me to go home and listen to this music so I can spread the word about how great their product is. So that's what I always considered it was, sort of. I, I'm looking around 1990, which is probably when the cassette peaked, and it looks like the cassette was generating about $10 billion in revenue. It's hard to get the exact numbers for each of the strata in this graph. And pull your car over, tap on that link, and look at the graph now so you understand. But I'm holding up, I'm actually holding up a CD in a sleeve against my monitor at the 6 billion line to see where that is. And then at the 14 billion, and then I'm comparing it vertically. And this is very hard to see. So they should have done this a little bit better. But it does look like the cassette was generating 10 billion back then. And, and if you look at vinyl, vinyl was dead in 1990. I mean, they're selling more vinyl now than they were in 1990. That's an amazing thing. But I don't think people are listening to vinyl as much as they were listening to it back then. That's I think, is the difference. I think vinyl has a, as we've discussed before, vinyl has a new purpose. Uh, and it's not necessarily to listen to the music, to hear the, mu to hear the content. It's to experience the analogness of, of vinyl, which is great. That's fine. It's a heritage medium. Yes. You listen to that while you are drinking an artisanal gin and tonic. A bespoke gin and tonic. Yes. Or some sort of a craft beer or something. Yeah. yeah. We, we mock a little bit, but it's true that it is a fad in many ways. And I think there was something a year or two ago that said that more than 50% of people don't ever listen to the vinyl records they buy. I mean, I've bought some vinyl records in the past few years as collector's items. I don't have a turntable, so I can't listen to them. Right. I would be afraid. I have older 
records that I haven't played in years, and I would be afraid to play them because I have this... It's 19th century technology. It's it's dragging a, a thing through a groove on a piece of plastic that just seems to me just wrong. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, I mean, every and it's like when you drive that car off the lot, it starts to depreciate. Well, as soon as you start playing a record, it starts to depreciate as far as quality goes. And I... I get that people want to listen to vinyl, and it is vinyl does sound good. Um, no, no argument there. But I think what's happening is we're seeing, you know, this this specialty uh, vinyl industry happening. You know, people are buying soundtracks and they're buying uh, the, the greatest records ever recorded and that sort of thing. So it's sort of a special uh, thing to have. And collectors' yeah. items, limited editions, and. We had this young singer, Keelan Rose, on a couple months ago, and she's releasing a couple hundred copies of her album in vinyl. And these aren't necessarily people who are going to listen to it, but they might be more likely to buy it to support an independent artist. Sure. You know, a lot of times when you buy a vinyl record these days, it comes with a download code. You get the best of both worlds. So it's interesting to look at the major inflection points here. Obviously, the earliest one was the compact disc. It was released, I believe, in 1984. And it was very popular for classical music early on because of the length of the disc. But the curve goes up really quickly, much more quickly than I would have expected. I got my first CD player in 1986. I was living in Paris. I was teaching English at a, I guess you call it a catering school. I was teaching English to teenagers who were studying to become chefs and waiters and sommeliers. And one of the people who worked there, I think, her husband worked for Philips and so got like a 30% discount. And it cost it cost a lot of money to get a CD player. And I remember the first few CDs I bought going into a store, one of the, the chains in France is called FNAC, F-N-A-C, and they sell records and books and DVDs and all that. And they had a small CD section. And I remember buying a handful of CDs to start out. Of course, the CD was quite expensive at the time, so I didn't buy a lot. And you couldn't find used CDs early on. It took years before people were starting to offload what they had. But when you look at how quickly this went up, this is really quite stunning. Look at MP3s, look at streaming, look at the curve as they gradually ramp up. But the CD was almost immediate because arguably it was so much better. It was better than cassettes. You didn't have to rewind them. They didn't get stuck in the in the gears and all that. It was obviously better than vinyl. And so many people bought CDs to replace existing records that they had. Now, you know, people look at an industry and they look at the high and they look at the low and they say, oh, it was so great when we were making $21.5 billion. You can't look at it like that because the compact disc was a glitch. It was really this kind of thing that just temporarily got people to buy things they already own because better quality, granted. But it was also overpriced. And if you want to look at what the music industry should really be worth, look back in the 70s and the 80s when it's anywhere from about 10 billion or even 9 billion in 82, it looks like, to about 15 billion in 78. Those are the real numbers to look at. And today's number is, looks like it's 8, 9 billion. So we're getting very close to that period. If you ignore the whole fling with the cassette and compact disc, you've got a curve that's gone down a little bit and it's going back up and it doesn't look like there's been that big a change no it doesn't it's actually amazing the um the the peaks of cassette and compact disc are just mountains compared to 
where the money was in the 70s and where the money is now. And it really does kind of look like a, a, a freaky sort of sort of thing. Yeah, it looks like an unnatural peak. Now, that peak of around 1999 or so, of course, that corresponds to an event that caused sales to drastically slide, which was the launch of Napster. Napster was not the very first um, tool for sharing music. There were others before it, but Napster was the easiest. You could do it almost, you could do it anonymously. You didn't need to specifically befriend people to get music from them. And the slide is vertiginous, dizzying. Oh, dizzy. Oh, right, right. Vertigo. Right. I get it. Vertigo, vertiginous. So this graph says that in 2002, CDs made up 95.5% of the recording industry's revenue. So after Napster, the cassette died. You can see the, 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 you can see it being strangled there. But the interesting thing that happens next, we think this is when Amazon started selling CDs in like mid 2000, early 2000s. That's right. And the compact disc gets a little bump before it starts plummeting again. But I'm wondering if that's Amazon. Yeah, it bumps for a year or two. I looked back on my Amazon orders before the show, and my earliest purchase of CDs was two records I bought for my mother in 2002. And so I think that's around, Amazon probably started selling CDs 2001, 2002. So the, the availability of CDs meant that people were buying them again for a while. And maybe Amazon was doing deep discounts as well. We don't know. Oh, oh they remember. were. Yeah, I definitely remember that. You could buy classic stuff a little bit cheaper, and I think they had like $10 specials or something. So one of the records I bought for my mother was Live in Paris by Diana Krull, and it cost twelve ninety eight. This was in December 2002. That doesn't seem to be particularly cheap, but this is 15 years ago. We have to remember inflation. By the way, this graph is adjusted for inflation, so we're looking at $2,017. Otherwise, the graph would be totally different than the... the the ups and downs will be much steeper. But I, I don't know, was $13 in 2002, was that cheap? Because today that's kind of the average price for a CD. I seem to remember going into CD stores and paying $15, $17, $21 for a CD, depending on you know who and what it was and how much music was on it. I would certainly think that Amazon tried to undercut. I mean, that's what they do, right? What's interesting is that I looked on an inflation calculator, and that twelve ninety eight from two thousand two would be worth about eighteen dollars today. So that meant that the CD was, I'd say, relatively expensive for what it was compared to, let's say, the LP or cassette. In the CD era, we, I still had the budgeting problem uh, that I had in the LP era. It's like I only have so much money to spend on something. What's interesting with this number, however, is that the CD in fifteen years did not increase in price, even though the inflation has been about 50%. In other words, we're, we're paying about that price for a new CD today, 13 bucks, even 10 bucks sometimes, um, not, not counting promotions, loss leaders, and, and sales and all that. So the CD in the early days was still a premium product, and we knew that. And of course, then people learned over time that the record companies were scamming us, saying that it cost more to press CDs, but it really didn't. That never bothered me, though. I didn't mind doing that because I got a better quality disc so i didn't mind doing that i mean i was used to buying records again if i didn't think they sounded that good if they got a scratch on them or a cat jumped on it or whatever i mean that wasn't an unusual thing so i'm i don't feel too resentful yeah that i had to buy a lot of cds because the cds just sounded better 
Um, yeah. You know, I, rem- I remember taking a whole stack of records and throwing them in a dumpster because, thank <laughs> goodness, I don't need these anymore. I oh, did that. imagine if you had kept them, how much they'd be worth on eBay. It's like throwing away the old comic books. Here's my problem. I didn't want to be carting them around, and I was in a business where I might have to move, yeah. you know, and I was moving a lot when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. So I just didn't want to carry the stupid things around anymore. Of course, that made it easier when the guy broke into our apartment in 1995 and stole all of my CDs. So that was <laughs> I was up, I was up Poop Creek there too. So yeah, but prices again, and I've mentioned this a number of times on the show. Uh, classical records are so cheap now. This 19 CD box set I bought was 39 pounds 99. That's a little bit more than two pounds a disc. Two pounds a disc. It would have. It would have cost back then, let's say, 15 pounds, because classical records were more expensive. It would have cost 15 pounds a disc or, you know, nearly 300 pounds for this box set. Why were classical CDs more expensive? Well... Was that a perceptual thing that they thought they could get away with charging more? That might be part of it. But I think when you consider that a rock album was about 40 minutes long, a classical record was more often 60 minutes or more. So you were getting more music. And, you know, you still have that expense on the back end of recording. So if you were buying the equivalent of one and a half LPs on a CD, you had the feeling you were getting more music for your money. And I, and I think in some ways they were, they were taking advantage of that. But also I think people were more sensitive to the quality of the sound for classical music than they were for rock, where you don't necessarily hear the pops and clicks the same as you do in a pianissimo section of a classical symphony. But classical records were more expensive. I remember that. Yeah, they definitely were. I didn't buy a lot of them, but the the two or three disc sets that I did buy, I remember paying a premium for them, or what I thought was a premium. And I just always assumed, well, it's because they've used the greatest orchestras and recording studios of Europe or something like that. But now, interestingly, as you just mentioned, it's almost inverted because you were able to buy this box set and the discs are so cheap. Well, but the, no, but these aren't new records. These are these are catalog records that were recorded years ago and, and have long since sold as much as they could at full price. And that's the advantage of classical music that that the long tail of the catalog does have a longer life than with popular music. But I just want to go back to this idea that the music industry is in trouble because you know they're looking at that peak in the 1990s, the cocaine fueled years when they were flying private jets and hanging out in, in expensive clubs and going to Bermuda and all that, which really was a glitch. And the music industry, the music industry did very, very well for itself for a decade or two, you know, for that period, let's say 85 to 2005. Um, and, and after that, things really plummeted a lot. But the music industry is about the same level in equivalent dollars as it was in the mid 80s. It's not that big a difference. And, and they shouldn't cry. If anything, you look at this graph and you see the, you see the inflection of the streaming curve that's down at the end and how much more money is coming in in streaming. The music industry overall is probably looking at a very good couple of decades. It's hard to think that music will be dematerialized even more than streaming. I think what will happen is we'll just have more efficient ways of delivering it. As long as we've passed over physical media, it looks like the music industry is in for a very, very long period of not much changing technologically yeah well if the way things are going here it really it's tough to tell from the trajectory of streaming and 
this resurgence of MP3 and this resurgence of the compact disc and resurgence of vinyl. It's tough to tell the trajectory of if streaming is ever going to overtake them. I mean, it, if you were to extrapolate further uh, into the future here, it it kind of looks like ad-supported streaming would overtake everything else. Well, ad-supported streaming looks to be doing a little bit more than MP3, a little bit more than compact disc. It, it's Its angle on the graph is steeper. But remember that it's really only Spotify that does ad-supported streaming. Apple doesn't. The other companies like Tidal and Cobuzz and Deezer, I don't think they do. Well, Pandora does. I mean, they have a subscription level, but they also have a, a free ad-supported one. Um, depending on your definition of streaming, you've got YouTube, Vivo, uh, iHeartMedia that makes most of their shows available with advertising and that sort of thing. I, I'm just surprised that ad-supported streams are doing as well as they are and that people are not averse to commercials and they're more averse to subscription fees. Well, in a way, ad-supported streaming is just radio. Yeah. Without DJs. Yeah, it's just in a different package. Right? Yeah, and without DJs, yeah. and without the, the news breaks and the weather. So if people have been very happy with radio for so many years, maybe they'll be very happy with ad-supported streaming. There's a research company called uh, Edison. They do a, an annual or a biannual report called the Share of Ear, which measures how we listen to music, what we listen to it on, that sort of thing. And they've been finding that people radio is still the number one place that people uh, get their music from, even though they don't listen to it as much as they used to. They don't have radios in their home. They rely on the car to listen to the radio. But if streaming is planning on you know the dominance that it looks like it's going to have, they're going to have to push the radio out of the car. Now, the chart doesn't really calculate how you know how much revenue is generated by music and radio that's not what it's calculating but radio is a big advertising business well they're computing the royalties that get paid to the rights holders which are either record labels or artists who are putting their music up independently that's not the case with radio though over here radios pay royalties when they play music so i don't know if that's counted in this or not i don't know what I don't know what kind of numbers there are for that sort of um, radio play, if that would just be a blip on a graph like this. What I would like to see is, regarding streaming, how much of it is playlist-driven and how much of it is individual selections. How many people look and find a favorite album, a new album, play the music they choose, and how many just put on a playlist to use it as radio background wallpaper. The mood um, playlist is pretty popular from what I understand. I don't use them, but playlists are extremely popular. And, you know, people want to have, I want I want to be in an elevator. So give me some elevator music, some classical music for elevators or a barbecue or things like that. And the way you choose music is not by, oh, I got to hear that new Led Zeppelin album. It's, I need some music to feel more relaxed. Uh, you know, or I need some music to study by, or I need some music because I want to rock out. But there's no, people aren't listening to albums so much as they're finding playlists that suit their mood. If you think about it, that's actually transformational. Because you had to know what type of music was on every record in, in your collection. Now, presumably, you bought them, so you knew what was on them, unless you got them from a friend who moved out and left you their collection. You had to know what was on the music. So you were thinking... I don't know, am I in the mood for Tom Waits or Boston? Do I want to hear the Eagles or Fleetwood Mac? And that sort of thing. The tone was more 
the band's tone than the tone of the music, if that makes sense. In the, in the sense that some Eagles songs were acoustic and some were electric. So you wouldn't necessarily get the same tone from those songs, even though they were the same artist. You know, you talk about knowing your own library, you know, the rise of the cassette and the mixtape. That was a that was a thing that people did. And I think if you had a large music collection and you were nuts about it, you were constantly thinking about, gee, if I were on the radio, uh, this is how I would program it. And, you know, me being on the radio, I'm always thinking about what the next song is going to be. What the next track is going to be. Or what the, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. What the next track is going to be. Um, I don't know why people put up with a playlist put together by somebody else when they don't know what's going to be on it unless... I mean, I don't want to say that's a shallow way of listening to music. That's not fair. As we've said many times, most people listen to music as wallpaper. They want it as background. They want something to drive what they're doing. You're in a car. It's boring to not be listening to anything and have to look at the road and not have your mind doing anything else. In fact, frankly, music keeps you awake when you're driving. You're studying. You want something to just kind of mellow you out in the background. You're having a dinner party. You want something to create an ambiance. Or as I've said, I've gone to my brother's house and he plays music and his game is more or less, are you impressed with this music that I'm playing in the background? Do you know what it is? <laughs> um, that's that sort of thing. Yeah, but that only works if, if it's a real music geek you're playing the music for who really yeah, cares we about were, it. Uh, we were brought up in a geek nest, so there's no question that he's. we're both geeky about music. Um, but I think a lot of people are. And... Um, Jeez, there's so many different ways of getting music now. I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm really impressed with the fact that the compact disc is coming back, or at least looks like it's coming back. I don't know why. You never hear about it. You hear about vinyl coming back. Well, we talked about it a few episodes ago. Yeah. Well, we have it's because we're trendsetters. Yeah. <laughs> we're thought and, leaders. And there is going to be a cassette day this year. You've probably heard about Record Store Day. Now they want to have a cassette day. I don't know. I, you know, remember when Liz Pelly told us that she only listened to, she had a little boombox and she listened to cassettes. And both of us were like, yeah, I could do cassettes again. I like cassettes. It's a bit too quaint, I think. You know, vinyl is one thing, but cassettes are a bit quainter. Well, the one thing about cassettes is that they force you to listen to music in a certain order. You could listen to an LP and always skip a track very easily, pick up the needle and put it down. With a cassette, you got to fast forward and try and find the right spot. You can't do that. With a CD, you just press the next button, you skip tracks easily. Dang, so two-finger thing on the cassette deck, the fast-forward, then let go, and then pick yeah, the pause. Yeah, forward, stop, forward, forward, play, yeah. Yep, yep, yeah, yep, yeah. yep. The, the one other thing that stands out here is that the eight-track tape represented more than $3 billion a year in the late 70s. Now, not to criticize any forms of music media, but the eight-track tape was really, really the worst one ever. Yes, but if you wanted to listen to music portably... And it was like, it was, that's, you needed an 8-track. It wasn't portable. It was in the car. Yeah, but I mean, if you wanted to listen to... You, you know anyone who had an 8-track deck that they could carry around and they would put headphones no, in? No, but I mean, what I mean by portable is they could take the music that they listened to at home and they could bring it with them in the car. I had some friends who had 8-track players in their car. I had some friends who had cassette players in their car. We've talked about how awful 8-tracks are. and But still, they made a lot of money. Look how much money they made. They Three and a half billion. I remember in those years, driving around in my friend John's car, listening to... Baby, you were born to Kachunk run, and that was just that was just not fair. It was even worse recording that stuff. My a friend of my father's had a eight track recording deck, and he borrowed it for some reason to do something for some project he was working on. And I also attempted to put some music on it. I bought some blank 
eight track tapes and it's just impossible trying to program the thing you can't you know because it automatically jumps to the next track now i don't remember and literally the next track it just jumps the the head jumps down i don't remember if it allowed me to record continuously or it said it didn't tell you it was going to stop i think it would just stop i never saw a recorder i only know from playing them back in in this guy's car he's the only person i knew who had one i don't think anyone else at the time even had a cassette deck in a car yeah well eight tracks were definitely the height of inconvenience i don't think we'll be seeing an eight track store day anytime (laughs) soon Why not? We do it every week. What's stopping us this time? It is time to present our next track picks. Kirk, what have you got this week? Okay, I teased my latest record purchase. It is a 19-disc set of cantatas by Johann Sebastian Bach. It is recorded by Sigiswald Kaiken and La Petite Bond, which is his ensemble in Belgium. It's on Accent Records. It is the complete liturgical year in 64 cantatas. Sounds pretty boring when you think about it, but Bach's cantatas are extraordinary. There are a number of complete sets of Bach cantatas, and I've talked about one in the past by John Elliott Gardner. I'm a Bach cantata fanatic, and I have several complete sets. Sigiswald Kaiken did not want to record all of the cantatas. Maybe his label couldn't afford for him to do it, so he recorded 19 CDs worth. The cantatas were written for church services, and there was one every Sunday, and there was one on every church feast. So you would have the 52 cantatas for the 52 Sundays, and then another 12 for the various feats, Advent, Easter, Christmas, etc. So what he did is he made a program of one particular year. It wasn't These weren't all written the same year. He selected the ones that would fit in this 52-week period, and he recorded them all. Now, what's really interesting about his approach is he uses a very small ensemble of musicians, and in terms of singers, he uses an approach that's called one voice per part. Box cantatas have been recorded in many ways, and one of them is with a very large choir in the background, 30, 50, 70 people. Yet, a lot of the musicological evidence that has come down suggests that Bach really only had four singers, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, and that sometimes for the larger works, like the Passions, they were doubled by another four singers. This is a huge debate in early music musicology. A lot of people disagree with this, but it creates an extremely intimate sound that you don't get from the types of cantatas that some other people have recorded with a large chorus that overwhelms the music. A very small number of musicians, it makes it more like a chamber performance than a a big orchestral performance, which is the way for many years some people perform the cantatas. So, link in the show notes. I found a few of the records are on Apple Music, but I don't think they all are. So, if you like this, buy the box set. It's The Complete Liturgical Year in 64 Cantatas by Sigiswald Kaiken and La Petite Bond. Doug, do you have something obscure today? Uh, possibly obscure for some. Not for me. It's one of my favorite records. It's uh, the second record by P.J. Harvey called Rid of Me. It came out in 1993. I remember when it came out because I remember not liking her first album. And when all the buzz was happening about the first album, I wanted to figure out, well, what is it then that that I can like about P.J. Harvey? And one of the things that I read about her was that she was influenced by Captain Beefheart. Well, I like Captain Beefheart. So when this album came out, I approached it a little bit differently. And it's actually, I think, much better than their first album. It's just the trio. It's just the P.J. Harvey trio bass, drums, and guitar. They can rock. They can go a little mellow, although mellow is probably not the term to use. It's, let's just say, light. 
She can be very dark with her lyrics,、uh, a lot of songs about anger and depression and resentment. But、uh, there's a great sense of humor in there too. The Captain Beefheart is there. A lot of tempo changes, a lot of、uh, time signature changes, changes in voice and things like that that make, for me anyway, Captain Beefheart a challenge to listen to. This album can be a challenge, but I find some of the songs absolutely delightful. The title track "Rid of Me" is just fantastic. There are two other songs that were released as singles that I remember: "Fifty Foot Queenie" and "Man Size." Both of those songs are great. And there's a fantastic, although not for everyone, cover of "Highway 61 Revisited," which is, well, I think is just tremendous. It's it's a fun thing to check out, and it's only three minutes long, which is unusual for a cover of "Highway 61 Revisited." This album was recorded by Steve Albini. In fact,、uh, it was the album he recorded before doing. Nirvana's "In Utero." In fact, he used it as a demo to get the "In Utero" job. So that kind of tells you where、uh, Nirvana may have thought P.J. Harvey ranked in the in the、uh, in the firmament. I really like this record. A lot of P.J. Harvey stuff I can take or leave, but this one is really one of my favorite albums of the '90s for sure. P.J. Harvey, "Rid of Me" is my next track. This has been the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.